BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today on Seneca, we've got a conversation with Lizzie Lee and Jude Blanchett from our Next China Conference, taped on November 10th. It's a fascinating discussion with two of the smartest folks in the China-watching space. Please enjoy. I'm really psyched about this next one because we will be joined by two fabulous guests for what is, in effect, part two of a Cynica podcast that we put out just a couple of months ago, not even quite two months ago. I had promised during the taping of that show that we would reconvene this during the, the next China conference and that we would revisit some of the same questions that we looked at back then now that some time has passed. So let me welcome, first of all, Jeremy uh, back on. Jude and Lizzie, please join me on the virtual stage and let's rock and roll. Um, let's introduce our guests, shall we, Jeremy? Let's do that. Yeah, well, I will go first and I'll, I'll go with Lizzie here. Uh, Lizzie Lee is an economist turned China analyst uh, and presenter at the excellent Wall Street TV, uh, which is my favorite YouTube channel, certainly my favorite Chinese language YouTube channel. Uh, it's called Xinru Hua Jie. By my lights, it is the best Chinese language news to be found in the U.S. No guo wangui nastiness, no falongong idiocy. Well, it's just great. She has been a contributor to SubChina, a very valuable one, and an amazingly keen observer of the Chinese political scene. Lizzie, welcome back. Hello, Kaiser. Happy to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and Jude Blanchett is Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he is a frequent guest on our show. He hosts CSIS's excellent uh, Pekingology podcast, and he is the author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. Jude, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We should point out that that book is not actually about what we're calling the red. <laughs> a, different, a different red yeah, uh, period. Uh, first of all, Lizzie, when we spoke back in September, uh, you still weren't quite convinced that we are seeing something that is you know, sort of part of a broader overarching program. You almost had me completely convinced uh, that, you know, 
Jeremy, I don't know if you felt the same way, but uh, you did complicate my thinking on this, which was always welcome. So you and Jude really kind of tag teaming, working together, uh, remind people who, you know, I mean, I, for people who hadn't listened to the show, they, they, they talked about the political calendar and the sort of logic of that political calendar in the run up to the 20th Party Congress next fall. Um, and talked about kind of pent up regulatory demand that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of things that would have been on the docket just got pushed back. And so suddenly we saw this rush of, and so I, I was a little discombobulated to use Jeremy's phrase, but where are you on this now? Are you, are you seeing this differently now? Right. So first, just let me clarify a little bit. I think last time <laughs> I mainly wanted to caution against the use, the, the use of overarching umbrella terms to subsume all China-related issues to things like party control, Xi Jinping's strongman tendency, right? And you know, now I still think it's quite important to understand the individual pieces when we talk about you know anti-monopoly driving China. I think it's important to understand you know the agencies like SAMR, CAC, MIIT, what they are, what they actually do, uh, instead of you know jumping to the conclusion, this is just an assault on private sector, that kind of argument altogether. But I will say, I, I feel that I wasn't completely able to see the forest for the trees, um, especially on the social issues. I remember last time when I was talking about the crackdown on fandom culture, uh, the crackdown on online gaming, I mostly thought it was, you know, a Xi Jinping thing. It's his, um, you know, standard of morality or whatever. But I might think on that front did change a little bit. Um, if you remember in August, there was this piece published in Qiushi, I think we will get to a little bit later, but basically Xi Jinping made an explicit mention of this idea of lying flat, right? Um, this popular life philosophy among many Chinese young people who want to escape the rat race without explicitly contributing productively to society. And I think Xi Jinping said something um, like, oh, well, a happy life is burned through hard work. Common prosperity is created through diligence, right? And he talked about common prosperity as an environment when everyone can participate in the development of the society, uh, avoid Avoiding evolution, avoiding lying flat. So that speech sort of helped me tying uh, the social piece more closely with the economics piece. And on the uh, pent up demand versus political calendar, I think I tend to appreciate uh, Jude's wisdom a little more than I did last time, but uh, <laughs> I'll just leave it to Jude to elaborate more. Uh, and perhaps I can ask, dude, you know, our last conversation took place before uh, Chosha had published uh, his speech in August. And uh, as Lizzie kind of mentioned, before the introduction of subsequent regulatory actions uh, that were often being couched in terms that ex explicitly tied them to a broader agenda. Uh, what developments have nudged you more towards seeing all of these things as a holistic package? seeing the shape of the forest now, as Lizzie had put it. I think um, first is there are some of the actions which I wouldn't put in this holistic view of either your you know, Red New Deal or this overarching common prosperity framework. So I think there are still some things that we were talking about over the summer, which don't slide in. And I think of the DDIPO, um, I don't think that fits broadly in, in, a, in a kind of a new Red Deal. And that really, for me, was the issue we were looking at front and center and set off this real cascade of action. But I, but I agree. I think, I, um, I think one of the beauties of working on China is you never have to admit you're wrong. So I'll just, um, I'll just uh, evolve my analysis as if I never was saying all that. Um, but I do. I think, um, I think 
couple things happened. Number one is, first of all, Xi Jinping came out and packaged it all together. And, and you know, Lizzie just mentioned this common prosperity push. Um, and I think also now getting some of the uh, narratives that are, uh, are surrounding the plenum, we haven't seen the history resolution yet, but it's clear now what they're saying is we're in a new era. Um, now, Xi Jinping has been saying, hey, guys, I, it's my era since the 19th Party Congress, but I now think actions and rhetoric are coming together in a way that's been, um, I think, demonstrative that something different is happening here. And then even when you look at issues like, I know we'll talk about real estate later, but again, this idea of rhetoric matching actions, um, the degree to which Beijing is trying to effectively draw a line on real estate and say, we're going to do our best to break the back of moral hazard um, to, sig to signal that this, this time is different. I think that's what's been really surprising for me. For so long, uh, Beijing would come up to the precipice and then return back to the old tools, kick the can, and, and the problem would snowball down the hill. And I think over the past year, COVID-19, for certain, we didn't see this massive stimulus package, which many of us were expecting. They sort of just, um, you know, they, they ground their way through. And now I think on a, on a range of regulatory measures, but especially the property sector, it's clear now that they're putting political will behind this. So I think it's those features coming together, Xi Jinping tying this in a bow, the propaganda threading the, the, the narrative for us, and then seeing the regulatory actions really meet the, you know, match the rhetoric. It's clear something different is happening now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you say we in the China studies field, we don't have to admit that we're wrong, but that doesn't mean that we still can't brag when we were right, right? <laughs> so, I mean, the time since the last podcast, I've advanced the kind of uh, hypothesis about, you know, why this is all happening. Uh, and it really draws to quite an extent on our earlier conversations. I mean, in a nutshell, and I've talked about this before, and my sense is that, you know, China had undergone these involuntary stress tests just across the last three years. And this has been brought up before, I mean, earlier today uh, during this 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 uh this conference, my sense is that um in the, you know these were the, of course the trade war the tech cold war some people have called it of course the COVID crisis the crisis especially the COVID crisis uh, Yashung pointed out um you know it looks particularly good in comparison to to the United States uh, there was the international program over Xinjiang and over Hong Kong and a lot of other things and China feels like it has emerged from this with, as I've said before, more regime support, more political capital, more confidence in its state capacity. And, and uh, rightly or wrongly, the rest, lesson that it draws is that it can endure short-term pain and, and reap long-term gain, right? It's time to break the eggs and make the omelet or you know, time to whatever, uh, pull the Band-Aid off. This is not to suggest that they're going to prevail. And I think you know, there's a lot of worry about overreach over you know, out of an abundance of hubris, right? So Lizzie, do you think I have this right? I mean, do you, do you think that there are other factors maybe that have convinced she and the party leadership that this is the right time to act? Right. So first, I will agree that China does think it emerged triumphant from what's perceived as a hostile external environment. And I would add that it's not just a grand facade to display strength to mask Xi Jinping's insecurity. I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's a genuine, genuine sense of confidence. And I also like and agree with the short-term versus long-term trade-off kind of framework to think about this issue. But you know, in addition to the political capital piece, which you just mentioned, I would just add that that the short-term, long-term kind of thinking is also deeply tied into sort of the economic logic here. Yeah. This, this audience would, would know that for quite some time, 
China's success is basically defined by GDP scorecard. And, you know, there's a perhaps over, overly simplistic argument that CCP's legitimacy also stems from its ability to deliver growth. But along that way, sacrifices like, um, you know, rising inequality, rising living costs, rampant property prices, deteriorating environment, poor social safety nets, they're treated as second order issues. Mm -hmm. And I think now, analysts and, and, and economists would, would agree that common prosperity fundamentally is a shift of priority from efficiency to equity, or in, you know, in, in Xi Jinping's own word, uh, previously it was about making the cake larger, now it's about dividing the cake more evenly. So that's sort of a, a great way to frame this. But I would also argue that there's also a fundamental logic. Common prosperity is also fundamentally an economic growth concept in a sense that we're basically trading off short-term pain in terms of GDP growth in exchange for long-term, more sustainable, healthier growth pattern, reorienting to consumption, uh, less wasteful investment in society, well, wasteful investment, and also uh, reigning in rampant debt. So that's sort of the trade-off that we're thinking about. So if I'm the decision maker in Beijing and I've wanted to think about optimal timing, how, when I'm gonna push it through, well, ideally, I would want to do it when short-term cost is the lowest and long-term gain is the highest. So when is short-term cost the lowest? And my argument is that it's really the year post-pandemic in a sense that, well, first there's a base effect. Last year was crappy. So if you're just doing moderately well this year, you're you know, your GDP growth still looks stellar. That's just, you know, the artifact of, of the number. And then there's also a post-pandemic demand surge, what we call reopening effect, right? So when basically all the sectors are, are opening, it's easy to get your, that, that GDP boost. And depending on what kind of analysis you look at, that kind of post-pandemic tide actually give you an extra two to, two to three percentage point of GDP growth, which, you know, it's, it's a pretty comfortable room for you to, 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 to maneuver and to sort of push through growth dampening, short-term growth dampening initiatives that could potentially hard, that could potentially be hard in other times. So I do think, you know, this, uh, po this year of post-pandemics is, is a year when short-term cost is the lowest. And if you wanted to push through these initiatives without making a dent in your GDP scorecard, this is the right time to do it. In terms of long-term gain, I would argue that it's optimal to do this when the deadlines for deliverables are far in the future. You know, you can do this at the beginning of a five-year plan. You can do it as, as the beginning of your term. And Xi Jinping can still harvest the full benefit of the long-term growth benefit, the long-term sustain, sustainability benefit that's further down in the future. So, you know, combining those two factors, I would argue that this is indeed the optimal timing for China to push through this common prosperity uh, initiative in terms of lowest short-term costs and highest uh, long-term kind of gain. And also you mentioned political capital. I think, you know, with the sixth plenum, with the historical resolution, this ideology conference uh, inside of the party, Xi Jinping is really taking advantage of inner party utility and uh, inner party util, uh, unity, and also his moment of maximal political capital. So we've got great timing and uh, for China, a great name, Common Prosperity. Dude, how do you feel about the name we've been giving it at SubChina, Red New Deal? Is it illuminating or is it confusing? Is it, does it sound too benign uh, or too uh, terrifyingly communist? Um, I, I guess to show how far I've moved since our last conversation, I, I actually think 
it underestimates what's going on here. Oh. Um, and, and I have come to the conclusion, I think now that we're pulling a lot of these threads together and I think bringing together, I think Lizzie's analysis was uh, very much the analysis of an economist, but it was great. Um, and, but I think really what she was saying is, you know, for Xi Jinping, the time to, to push and pay a price is, is now. But I think more fundamentally what's happening is we're entering an entirely new era of China's development model. And I think this will be seen as, as profound a shift in the trajectory of Chinese growth as 1992. I wouldn't say wow. 78, 79, but I would say certainly 1992. And I think it's the correlation of an external environment, which is drastically different from what China has experienced from 1990 to 20, uh, 2016. Um, I think a political evolution under Xi Jinping or devolution, I should say, is probably more likely um, considering that he is now going to take a third term. Um, but I think more fundamentally, and Lizzie, I think is spot on, you know, one of the reasons you were going broke for growth in 2005, for example, is you had 15 to 20 new, you know, um, uh, workforce entrants. Now you, you, you're losing to one to 2 million a year. And, and the you know, new workforce entrants you have coming out of Chinese university systems don't want to work in low-skill uh, manufacturing jobs. They demand higher value-add jobs. So when Xi Jinping said in 2017, which I didn't fully appreciate the profundity of this, that the principal contradiction had changed um, from you know, boosting aggregate productive capacity to qualitative growth, there was a time lag, I think, of three or four years, but it's finally clear that um, he's now got the political credibility and I think the sort of domestic, the domestic support and the international environment is operating in a way that sort of, I think, boosts his message that, folks, it's time to gird our loins, batten down, and really push through these painful reforms. And what's interesting to me is I remember being in Beijing in 2012, 2013, where there was a view that Xi Jinping might be a reformer. He had the third plenum. Then we went back and said, no, 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 you know, he's actually breaking hard to the left, but maybe that's because he's going to break to the right and push for more marketizing reforms. And, I, and again, what I'm realizing now is actually he was going left to go left. Yeah. He was essentially consolidating authority and power because he was going to reform, but it was a different type of restructuring and reform than I think many were, you know, at, at banks and, you know, financial service firms were hoping. Um, but I think now the, the job for us is to understand what um, Xi's conception of a modern socialist nation entails, because that's the roadmap between now and 2035 is building out that system. And it's tackling a lot of the issues that Lizzie mentioned. It's reforging uh, an economy which is resilient to supply chain shocks and volatility. Um, this is a real, I think this is just a fundamentally new period we're entering into. It's an exciting time to be in our business. Yeah. You know, and Adam Tews had actually you know, written that question and said, you know, is this what it sounds like when an economy shifts gears completely? And this is, it was remarkable when, when he said it. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about earlier in this conference about de the deflation of the property bubble. Again, it was Adam who talked about sort of the the, the daring of pricking the pin and taking the moral hazard out, I think, as Yashon said, uh, this, this planned demolition, right? Um, we've we've all been um, you know aware of this, but it all depends on the, the ability to prevent contagion. You know, the property market is just so integral to uh, the rest of the economy, both upstream and downstream. Uh, it seems like 
a load-bearing wall that you just can't knock down as part of the remodeling. Uh, what are the risks involved in here, Lizzie? Right. So I, I def- definitely agree with that assessment. I actually think China's you know, property market is probably, well, sort of correcting China's property market is probably the key pillar in this common prosperity drive. And I would you know, I would go so far as to say that I think it's ultimate test of Beijing's political drive. This is really the hardest piece we've seen so far. This audience would know that uh, China's property market has been a driver for China's growth and China's wealth accumulation over the past two decades or even more. But it's also a, a cause for, for inequality, um, depending on which number you look at. Um, well, growth related to the property market is probably 25% of China's total GDP growth. And if you look at household, uh, household wealth, Roughly seventy to eighty percent of household wealth is locked into house value, so that's quite that's quite significant. So here's the fundamental contradiction: if you correct the value of of the property market, then the drop in property property value could potentially make homeowners feel poorer through the wealth effect, and that could potentially have effect on their consumption. So the controversy, what well, the contradiction is. Well, you want to reduce housing prices, but by reducing housing prices, you also reduce household wealth. And by reducing household wealth, you also reduce their, ten- their tendency, well, their propensity to, to spend or propensity to consume. Basically, you're hurting the, the, the group of people you're trying to help to start with. So that's kind of a hard problem to solve. And, you know, by sort of overly reducing property value in China, I would argue it's it's like shooting oneself in the foot. So it's a it's a hard problem. And second, as as Kaiser mentioned, there's also this problem of um, contagion, risk contagion. As you know, property market is not isolated. There are lots of upstream stream uh, upstream suppliers on in construction, in property management, and sales. Downstream buyers, households, they're all very much interconnected. Right. If you look at the um, the what, what the officials are saying from uh, PBOC, their assurance is very much along the lines of, oh, we'll be able to ring fence the risks that um, you know property giants like Evergrande's collapse pose to the entire financial system, the so-called controlled implosion without risk of contagion. But the thing is, when it comes to Evergrande or those property giants, it's, it's definitely much more complicated. I mean, I think from the number I saw, around two thirds of liabilities owned by Evergrande is tied to this vast network of enterprises, suppliers, contractors, subcontractors, and their forms of financing is not as clean as we would imagine. Much of it is not even on paper. So how do you solve that complicated supply chain finance problem without accidentally firing up a risk that leads to systematic insolvency. I think that's a problem that requires careful thinking. And actually, uh, Angela Jane and co-author had a great piece on this, on sort of the supply chain finance vulnerabilities associated with uh, Evergrande, which I highly recommend. But the point is- there another key risk um, of uh, cutting off a vital revenue source for local governments? Because that is traditionally how- Right. They finance themselves. How, how can the China possibly deal with that challenge of essentially uh, making local governments find a whole new way to pay their bills? Yeah, that's actually sort of the point that my last point I was about to get into. Oh. But those structural 
challenges in the tax and revenue model of local versus um, central government, I think is is deeply ingrained. It's really hard to change. In fact, if you look at the the debate on property tax reform, is that it was actually one of the top three physical reform priorities outlined by then Ministry uh, of Finance. I think in 2013, followed the third following the third plenum. It was like mostly. Well, roughly a decade ago, in that time, um, Finance Minister was Lo Jiwei. He promised to have this gradual transition away from the original model to this property tax model, basically recurring tax on property values as a way to reduce um, China's rampant housing price. But ironically, local governments basically, you know, strongly lobbied against that transition because exactly as Jeremy just said, um, their finance rely heavily on land sales and you know, adoption of property tax would just impair their infrastructure investment. So how do you actually fix the system if failed once? Is Xi Jinping going to be successful this time? I honestly don't know. But that's that's the extent of how hard this is. The party made a promise and didn't realize that. That's such a difficult needle to thread. I mean, it's it just seems so amazingly challenging. Uh, what do you think are the keys if they if 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 there's a key to success in doing this and addressing these really intractable, deep-rooted problems, what are some of the things that they need to get right? What do we need to look for to see them, you know, actually have a chance at even succeeding in, in this? Right. So that's a great question. And, you know, here I'm just, just I, do, I would just propose a bunch of ideas, maybe none of them work. But first, you know, as a former economist, I would say, take a more path-dependent approach in a sense that, you know, there are multiple problems. There's solving the tax revenue model problem. There's a reducing uh, property value or reducing housing price uh, value. There's the debt problem. There's um, other kind of related issues re- related to supply chain vulnerabilities. So I would say figure out which piece to attack first and do it slow and small, right? If you want to do a rollout of a property tax, probably not a national a nationwide rollout. First, you know, pick a few, um, you know, areas to try it and try different magnitudes and try different orders and see how the feedback is. Is the revenue sufficient? And, you know, kind, kind of have that experimental approach instead of a command and control approach, which is what we've been seeing so far. I think that will be beneficial. And second, I would just mention that I think signaling or messaging is incredibly important. And I think um, the party has not done a good enough job in massaging market expectation. And it's quite, I think the most obvious case is on the messaging uh, surrounding common prosperity. Remember when uh, Xi Jinping first made the speech on common prosperity, he mentioned this idea of tertiary uh, redistribution, and that just shocked the market. People were like, well, are we going to do a Robin Hood style approach to wealth inequality, right? And all the tycoons sort of, you know, are are they going to contribute all their wealth? What's going on there? And Xinhua came out with a piece later on, basically elaborating on the idea of common prosperity and telling us, well, it's not egalitarianism. It's it's not, you know, robbing the rich to help the poor as misinterpreted by some hostile Western media. But the point is, if you don't want Western media to input it that way, why can't you get the message right first time around? And I do think, as um, as Drew mentioned, there's this tendency to sort of overshoot them, pull back. And that's really not the ideal way to do things. Uh, you know, if you can get the right more, if you can get the message sort of more gradual, slowly put that in, it will be more 
um, you know, it would be a, a, a more optimal way to, 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 to deliver that message. Um, yeah. So that's, that would yeah, be my so message. Absolutely. I think that messaging is important, not only for foreign investors, but also for the people who are hoping to be made whole, you know, mm-hmm. by this, this whole thing. Um, Lizzie, there are a couple of requests that I've seen in the, in the chat and in the Q and a that you repeat the name of the author and the title of the piece on Evergrande and supply chain finance risks. Right. So I believe it's Angela Jane uh, in Hong Kong. Um, Right. And another co-author, I can't really remember. I, mean, I believe the piece is published in uh, in Bloomberg Opinion, I believe. But uh, yeah, that's that's it's yeah. I think it's yeah. right, 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 right. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so mm-hmm. much. No Jeremy, did you have a question? Uh, no, sorry. I thought you were going to uh, ask the next question. Yeah, yeah. Had. I'm sorry. I'll go ahead. I, I thought you were you were about to ask something. So. Um, you know, do you think that, that Jude, I think I think both of you can take a crack at this, is Beijing now all in on this? Or do you think that they've left themselves um, room to, I mean, as, as Jude said, suggested, you know, run up to the cliff and then back off? Or are there maybe a better metaphor? Are there off ramps to this right now? Are there ways or are, are those things where they can, you know, when you're going downhill and trucks have those sort of off ramp things that they can slow their, <laughs> their roll? Uh, what do you think, Jude? Do you think Beijing's all in on this now? Uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, um, no, they're off ramps. I mean, we're already seeing this with the rollout of the property tax plan. It, they're right. doing it in, in trial zones, you know, with, uh, with Evergrande right now, of course, the trying to wring out sort of the froth of the market, they're already starting to loosen up some of the, some of the three red lines because they don't want to grind the whole damn thing to a halt. So I think the, in, to some extent, the tried and true method of, of trial and error is um, and local level experimentation with this is likely to be how they're going to move forward. The difference, though, is um, Xi Jinping is saying the the runway on this is long and consistent. Don't expect us to 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 turn the corner. Um, we're going to have to essentially push and pull back as things work and don't work. And the other thing too, I think, on all of this, you know, just so I don't sound like I've drank the sea Kool-Aid when I say he's shifting the growth model, you know, reality gets a vote in all of this. <laughs> and this is a extraordinarily daunting set of objectives he set for himself. And, and I should also say the way that he's going about this with the kind of, the kind of eye of Sauron uh, approach from the center, I think, I mean, China's Recent experience shows some of the governance pathologies that can come out of this this approach of kind of more top down central planning. Right. So um, I, I think this is this story has has yet to be written. Um, we're we're at the first inning here, and I think there's as many pitfalls as there are as there are promises here. And if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm I'm probably feeling pretty good right now. But as I look out, you know, over the next two, three, five years, and to Lizzie's point. You know, all of these things are a, a massive accumulation of, of small and big governance challenges and the sequencing and the timing and navigating vested interests and making sure you're prioritizing who, who gets the haircut and who di- doesn't. There's no clear blueprint for any of this. Mm-hmm. So I think all of us watching this externally, even as we think Xi Jinping's got the plan, um, need to expect that I think volatility, unpredictability is going to be the norm. And with Xi Jinping essentially driving the boat in the same way that we were all surprised by the velocity and pace and, and to some extent the confusion and chaos around the swirl this summer, I don't think that goes away. I, I think we're going to see this move in fits and surges um, as it evolves. 
What um, is related to all of this that I saw on is, of course, what's going on in <laughs> Beijing this week with the sixth plenum of the 19th uh, Party Congress. Uh, and so by the end of the week, sometime probably in the next 24 hours, we'll know more about a historical resolution, only the third such resolution ever to be uh, issued by the, the Chinese Communist Party. How, do, how does this third historical resolution play into uh, the common prosperity agenda, do you think? Maybe Jude, you can take a crack at that. And then um, I'd love to hear Lizzie's opinion on this as well. Just very quickly, I think the function of the history resolution is more going to be mapping out and clarifying that we're in the Xi era. And this is, I, I think this is as much going to be demarcating as the People's Daily said, by the way, Tuesday morning, the era of revolution, national construction and reform is over. Um, this is a new era. And I think this is going to underline it, circle it, uh, put the highlighter over it. And actually, I would say for folks who, who can't wait a day or so to get the resolution, um, Xi Jinping's um, speech in January about the new development concept contains about three or four paragraphs on that sums up the history that feels to me like probably a precy for what the language is going to be in the in the resolution in terms of what the overall message is. But I think, Jeremy, just very narrowly to your point, I think common prosperity is arguably going to be in here to clarify that this is going to be one of the dominant themes of uh, policymaking and messaging to Chinese people. I hear you. Um, we are now, you know, we've moved from one phase where we had to get, you know, build up aggregate resources. Now I hear all your concerns. Um, I understand that the sort of neoliberal logic has created a lot of uh, negative externalities. It hasn't met the, the, the rising needs of the Chinese people. So don't worry. This is now going to be our focus moving forward. We've always been listening to the people. The people has, have always had different demands, uh, but we hear you. But if you are not on board with that agenda, we'll ruthlessly crush you and grind up your bones. <laughs> that part that part is the quiet part they don't say in the resolution, Jeremy. Well, to, to Lizzie's earlier point, it doesn't sound like terrible messaging to me. I, I mean, that sounds, I mean, and, and the way that I've, I've, you know, heard it, seen it fall on the ears of many of my Chinese friends who are very, <laughs> who are very critical of Xi, uh, there seems to be a lot of buy-in. I mean, anecdotally. But, uh, can, can I just one point? But I think the the the, un, the, the part not said though is the the deep anxiety I feel in here is not about the policy agenda; it's about Xi Jinping, and and sort of the idea now that that he is going to be in power for an indeterminate mm -hmm. length of time. I don't think it means everyone is lockstep torches marching down Chang'an Avenue to unseat the guy, um, but I do think there is an unspoken quiet. Um, surrounding his taking this third term, even if you support the policy agenda. Sure. Right. sure. right. I, I completely agree. I'll just add a, a couple of points here. So if you look at the difference between this historical resolution versus the previous two version, I think one key difference, the focus is on achievement rather than self-reflection. The previous two resolutions talk about problems, mistakes in the past. But as we can tell from the title of the third historical resolution, it's, a good, it's gonna be about the party's achievement in the past 100 years. And then a forward-looking piece or projecting into the future, which no one knows when it's gonna end. So I think that kind of, I don't want to use the word hubris, but that kind of confidence, um, I think there's there's element of truth, there's element of grounding to it, but it's it's also kind of you know scary. So you know from from my uh, from my talking with 
people in in China, I get this mixed sense of yes, we are stronger. Uh, you guys in America did a terrible job during COVID, but there's also this sense of insecurity. So when is the end of it? How is he going to solve this succession problem? So I think it's a kind of a mixed feeling there. And onto a Kaiser's question on messaging, here. I actually agree that the direction of common prosperity is quite clear. I don't think there's any room for change on that. But I did see some what I would call encouraging signs on the willingness to course correct. Um, actually, you know, before this, I, I read in, in Wall Street Journal that Chinese regulators in charge of sort of um, defusing the Evergrande bomb actually become wary of the financial risks of other property property giants that they are willing to consider to relax the three red lines a little bit so that you know those struggling developers can sell off their assets to say state firms to avoid defaults and avoid hits to broader economy so that willingness to kind of to be a little flexible on the margin i think is an encouraging sign um as far as i can tell you know jude you mentioned right now that they might not be you know marching down challenge with torches but can we see cracks are they i mean people talked about them with respect to the rollout of 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 the property tax that that is apparently a not entirely popular move but you know is there cohesion within the at least the upper echelon of the party leadership right now is there any evidence of any meaningful disunity or even dissent is that even possible right now i mean i think we need a taxonomy of of dissent just so we can make clear or put this on a spectrum because Within the next 24 hours, Xi Jinping is going to come out of the sixth plenum, have a history resolution, and he's increasingly called the people's leader on the front of the people's daily. So if there is arguably and clearly rising tension, frustration, some grumbling within certain pockets, which I think is inarguable, A, that's been a feature of Xi Jinping's reign for 10 years. Um, He has broken some, you know, smashed some iron rice bowls, um, purged, imprisoned, um, of course, a lot of this is not going to be popular, but I think the functional thing that we should be looking at if our threshold is not, is there unpopularity? There's unpopularity with Joe Biden. I think the thing we're thinking about and watching for is, is it rising to the level where A, his position in power is potentially at risk, or B, the resentment frustration will be such that it will that could fundamentally undermine his policy agenda. And I think the, the second one is more realistic to me where we'll see pockets of, you know, Buzoe and all the classic pathologies of governance, which get in the way when the center wants to move the, the localities. But the first one, as I say now, and I've been saying for five years, it's not the droid you're looking for. It's a waste of, <laughs> it's a waste of time to be thinking that, oh, he's done it now because every day, you know, every August this happens around Beidaiha and every August he comes out large and in charge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, thank you guys so much. This is, uh, we're right at time. Uh, what a fantastic conversation. It was everything that I was looking for. Uh, I think you can see anyone who's um, who's listening can understand why I have just so much admiration for these two and why they make such a, a fantastic duo on, on the set. So, um, you know what? We're going to make this a regular feature. The Jude and Lizzie <laughs> hour is going to, you know, we'll, we'll ride again uh, soon and as we, you know, because this is going to be, I'm going to change the damn name of the show. This is going to be like the Red New Deal podcast. That's all we're going to. I, or maybe we can call it exciting new developments in Xi Jinping's new development <laughs> concept. <laughs> like that. Chronicling the new era. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you. And uh, I'm going to hand over to Jeremy and uh, make myself scarce. Right now. The Cynical Podcast right. is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Cynical Network. 
Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Music